Greetings, students. This is Professor Totten, and welcome to American History to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Era of Good Feelings. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, The War's Aftermath. The United States emerged from the War of 1812 with a heightened sense of nationalism. President Madison was more popular when leaving office in 1817 than he had been when he assumed it in 1809. This is because of the victories during the War of 1812, in particular the Battle of New Orleans. In addition, the death of the Federalist Party reduced sectionalism and it reduced the arguments over states' rights. The War of 1812 lessened the economic and political dependence on Europe, and westward expansion and optimism about the future greatly increased. Thus, Americans were coming to regard themselves as Americans first and state citizens second. In this environment, politicians began enunciating a vision for the future, like Henry Clay's American system. Henry Clay's American system has three major components. First, the Tariff of 1816, which is the first protectionist tariff in U.S. history. Its purpose was to protect American manufacturing from British competition. After the war, the Brits flooded the United States with cheap goods, often below cost, to strangle infant U.S. industries. As a result, Americans believed the British were attempting to crush U.S. factories, and they imposed a 20 to 25% duty on imports. This was not really high enough to provide completely adequate safeguards, but it did start a protective trend in U.S. foreign policy. The second part of the American system was called the Second National Bank, and it was passed by Congress in 1816. You see, a lack of a national bank during the War of 1812, created a banking vacuum in which local banks sprung up all over the country. These banks flooded the nation with depreciated banknotes, which also hampered the war efforts and affected interstate trade. The second national bank was modeled after the first, but it had three and a half times more capital inside amounting to about $35 million. Jeffersonians supported the revived bank. They used the same arguments that the Federalists had in 1791, even though at this point in time, the defunct Federalist Party declared the second bank as unconstitutional. The third part of the American system was internal improvements. Congress passed Calhoun's bonus bill in 1817, which would have given $1.5 million to the states for internal improvements. But Madison vetoed this, claiming it was unconstitutional. His successor, James Monroe, followed suit because Jeffersonians hated the idea of direct federal support of interstate internal improvements, and they saw this as a state's right issue. New England especially opposed federal constructed roads and canals because they believed it would drain away the population and create competing states out west. This means that prior to the Civil War, 
most internal improvements, except for railroads, were done at the expense of state and local governments. And as a result, the North will have a far greater amount of railroads and canals than the South, which will play a critical role in the American Civil War. Please advance to the next slide, entitled The Great Triumvirate. The sectional battle over the American system will be represented by the three great congressional leaders of the antebellum period, John C. Calhoun, Daniel Webster, and Henry Clay, also called the Great Triumvirate. John C. Calhoun was a senator from South Carolina and represented the Southern view. He was a war hawk and at the time an ardent nationalist. And he initially supported the 1816 tariff but he later opposed it because he claimed that it was enriching Yankees over his beloved South. Daniel Webster was a senator from New Hampshire, and he represented the Northern views. He actually opposed the 1816 tariff, but would in the future always be a proponent of protectionist tariffs. In New Hampshire, shippers worried that the tariff would affect the carrying of their trade and New England had not yet developed manufacturing as thoroughly as it would in the coming decades. Henry Clay was the Speaker of the House from Kentucky, and he saw tariffs as a way to develop a profitable home market. He believed eastern trade would flourish under protection, that trade revenues would fund roads and canals into the interior, especially along the Ohio River Valley. Frontier settlers cried out for better roads where none existed. They understood that foodstuffs and raw materials from the South and West would flow into the North and East, enriching everyone. However, as I stated earlier, internal improvements would largely fail at the federal level and would be subject to the prerogatives of the states. Please advance to the next slide, entitled the election of 1816. In 1816, James Monroe was elected president. He was the third Virginian in a row, and he continued the so-called Virginia dynasty, which made up four of the initial five presidents, making 32 out of 36 years of the presidency being held by a Southerner. Monroe had served as Madison's Secretary of State, he had been the last president who would fight in the revolution, and he assembled an all-star cabinet, because it is always important to remember that we don't know everything, and we need experts around us to give the best advice possible. Monroe tapped William H. Crawford as Secretary of the Treasury. He made John C. Calhoun his Secretary of War. Henry Clay was actually offered practically every single job except for Secretary of State, but he decided to remain the Speaker of the House. The position of Secretary of State would thus fall to John Quincy Adams, the son of President John Adams, who as a teenager had worked as an aide to the U.S. Minister to Russia. Later, he served as the U.S. Ambassador to the Netherlands, Prussia, Russia, and England. He was the leader of the U.S. delegation that negotiated the Treaty of Ghent, 
He was a senator and taught at Harvard. And he is one of the single greatest diplomats in American history. Please advance to the next slide, entitled The Era of Good Feelings. Make an important note here. Is this really an era of good feelings? And at the end of the podcast, I'll ask you to reflect on whether that name is accurate or not. The title comes from a newspaper during Monroe's presidency, which declared that it was an era of good feelings. And really, there are several reasons why one might think that. First, there's really only one political party, and Monroe runs for re-election in 1820 unopposed. Second, it is an era of economic prosperity, uh, at least until the Panic of 1819. And third, Monroe sought national reconciliation in 1817 when he began a tour of military bases from New England to Detroit. This was his way of telling the nation that it was time to forgive the North for flirting with secession at the Hartford Convention in 1814. Finally, Monroe's administration was focused on national security and expanding America's borders. And this would be relatively orderly in the North, but not so much in the Southeast, as Spain still owned Florida and Americans wanted to secure that region. By the way, we should note that while white Americans were very eager for expansion, African and Native Americans were less so, because expansion would mean the extension of slavery and Indian removal. Now, while all of that points to an era of good feelings, the Panic of 1819 suggests otherwise. This was a devastating economic downturn or depression, and it had many sources. But at the end of the day, it came back to overproduction as a result of the Napoleonic Wars. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Foreign Policy. The foreign policy of the United States was primarily led by John Quincy Adams, who, as I said earlier, was the greatest Secretary of State in American history. He was focused on dealing with Britain and Spain, hoping to expand the boundaries of the young United States. He first did this with the rush bagot Treaty in 1817, which limited naval armaments on the Great Lakes. And by 1870, the United States and Canada would share the single longest unfortified border in the world, totaling 5,500 miles. The following year, Adams signed the Treaty or Convention of 1818 with England. This fixed the American-Canadian border along the 49th parallel, and it also created a joint occupation of the Oregon country without surrendering the claims of both nations to that region. This was done not only to improve American and British relations, but also to prevent the expansion of Russians into North America, as they already held possession of Alaska and several hunting posts from Oregon to California. Now by this time, Spain was a crumbling power, but it still controlled Florida, 
Cuba, and much of Latin America, as well as a territory south and west of the Louisiana Territory. Many of Spain's Latin American colonies were in revolt, and the United States was sitting back and watching, ready to take advantage, and Adams was leading the way. Many Americans believed they already had a claim to West Florida, where settlers had torn down the Spanish flag in 1810, and Congress had ratified the conquest during the War of 1812. In addition, revolutions in South America forced the Spanish to remove their troops from Florida, and as a result, Florida was flooded with runaway Indians, slaves, white outcasts, and a number of others who began to pillage and kill along the southeast border. In response to these attacks, Andrew Jackson would go beyond his presidential directive and change American history forever. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Jackson's Invasion. In 1816, President Monroe commissioned Andrew Jackson to punish the Native Americans and, if necessary, pursue them back into Florida, but he was to respect all Spanish outposts. Jackson managed to sweep through central and eastern Florida during the First Seminole War, which raged from 1816 to 1818. But Jackson ultimately exceeded his orders by capturing two Spanish forts, and he deposed the Spanish governor. In addition, he created an international incident when he executed two Indian chiefs and British aides to the Spanish cause. At the time, Jackson claimed that he was acting under orders from the Secretary of War, John C. Calhoun, and he also privately claimed that Monroe had given him permission to capture Florida. But to this day, it remains unclear, because many government officials wanted to punish Jackson, and John Quincy Adams was actually the only man to defend him. And this is relatively ironic, considering the two would become bitter rivals in the future. As a result of this invasion, Adams convinced Monroe's cabinet to offer Spain an ultimatum. The administration demanded that Spain control the outlaws of Florida, which they knew Spain was not equipped to do. Or Spain had to cede Florida to the United States. This infuriated the Spanish, but they realized that they would lose Florida in any case, and so they decided to negotiate. Adams used this leverage and was able to conclude the Adams-Onus Treaty, which is also called the Transcontinental Treaty of 1819. In this treaty, the United States got Florida for a cool $5 million, and the United States and Spain delineated the southwest border, which you can see on the map. Spain ceded all of their claims to Florida and to Oregon, and the United States abandoned its claims to Texas, which became a part of independent Mexico. By 1822, the Spanish Empire fell apart, with Chile, Peru, Colombia, Argentina, and Mexico establishing their independence. Adams and other Americans loved this, and Adams made sure that the United States was one of the first to establish diplomatic relations with these new nations. But the question remained, 
Would Spain try to get them back? Well, Spain was too weak to do so on her own, but Americans feared that the powerful European monarchs who had recently helped the Spanish king reestablish his authority at home might seek to restore Spanish rule in Latin America. Americans also worried about Russia and the Pacific Northwest. Would they try to increase their presence? And the question became, how would the United States respond to these possibilities? This was answered in the President's Annual Address in 1823, written by John Quincy Adams and called the Monroe Doctrine. It laid out Americans' foreign policy for the next 100 plus years. It said, quote, The American continents, by the free and independent condition which they have assumed and maintained, are henceforth not to be considered as the subjects for further colonization by any European power. Thus, no more colonization in the Western Hemisphere. But the Monroe Doctrine goes further and said, quote, In the wars of European powers in matters relating to themselves, we have never taken any part, nor does it comport with our policy to do so. It is only when our rights are invaded or seriously menaced that we resent injuries or make preparation for our defense. In other words, Americans will maintain isolationism and non-intervention in European affairs. While this applied to all European powers, it was primarily directed at Russia. This was widely supported by nationalist Americans, and it seemed to maintain Washington's tradition of avoiding entangling alliances, which he enunciated in his farewell address. But British reactions were pretty mixed. European monarchs were angered and offended at U.S. haughtiness, and Latin American countries were skeptical. They viewed this doctrine as a way for the United States to protect her own interests, which she did do throughout the 19th and 20th century. But we should note, the United States Army and Navy is relatively small and weak. So who do you think is going to enforce this? Well, the country with the biggest navy. And that means that Great Britain has to enforce this. And this is what a lot of upper-class Latin Americans saw, as the British fleet being the true protector of their freedom, not the United States. Regardless, the immediate impact of the Monroe Doctrine was relatively small. It wasn't until 1845, when President Polk revived it as an excuse for the Mexican-American War, but despite that, its long-term impact is undeniable. The Monroe Doctrine became the cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy throughout the late half of the 19th century, all the way into the early 20th century, before Theodore Roosevelt expanded upon it with his Roosevelt Corollary. Lastly, the Monroe Doctrine was finally laid aside in 1945, when the United States signed the UN Charter and ushered in a new era of American intervention abroad. Please advance to the next slide, entitled The Politics of Expansion. As Americans expanded westward, sectionalism intensified, because in 1819, Missouri applied for statehood. This was the first state west of the Mississippi River to apply for statehood, and it had enslaved African Americans residing there. 
and many Americans asked, would slavery be allowed to expand westward? And what would the future of the West be like? In an attempt to deal with these questions, the Talmadge Amendment was proposed, which stated that no more slaves would be allowed into Missouri, and that all enslaved children would be manumitted or freed upon their 18th birthday. Now, the South viewed this as a provocation, and the North believed that this was critical to maintain the balance of power in regards to representation in the Senate, but also in the House of Representatives, which would have an increased advantage due to the Three-Fifths Compromise. Now, in 1819, there are 11 slave states and 11 free ones, which means that admitting Missouri as a slave state would throw off this balance of power, and northern congressmen thus want to block Missouri unless it bans slavery in its constitution. However, southerners worried about the precedent this would set. What about the future of the slave system? What about the movement of quote-unquote property across straight lines? Southerners wondered, if Congress can abolish slavery in one place, can it very well do it in the South as well? Many Southerners were worried about anti-slavery agitators, especially with the Haitian Revolution fresh in their minds. For a moment, it looked like civil war might be possible over this issue of slavery in the territories. But ultimately, a deal was struck thanks to Henry Clay, and this deal was called the Missouri Compromise of 1820. In the Compromise, Missouri would enter as a slave state, and Maine would enter as a non-slave state. But what about every other state wanting to enter the Union later? Well, a line was drawn along the southern boundary of Missouri and the northern boundary of Arkansas, along the 36-39 line. And this stated that slavery would be legal south of the line, and slavery would be illegal north of the line, except in Missouri. Now, in a way, it looked like the North might have an advantage from this deal, but many Southerners did not think that slavery could exist in the frigid North. Well, the thing about compromises is, no one is ever happy. And while Henry Clay was dubbed the Great Compromiser, this was not a true compromise. Because in order to get this bill passed, it had to be separated into three different measures, and each section voted on the measure that they liked, and they voted against the measure they disliked. The true lesson of this episode is that the political parties realized that they needed to keep silent on the slavery question, to keep it out of politics, and thus to sweep it under the rug, where it would fester for decades and explode in the political crisis of the 1850s, and then finally, the American Civil War. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Legacy. So, what is the legacy of the Missouri Compromise? Well, one, it lasts 34 years until the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. It showed that slavery was the dominant issue in American politics, and it was swept under the rug as a result. This was a setback to national unity. 
it turned John C. Calhoun from an ardent nationalist to a sectionalist. Clay was seen as the great appeaser, and we have this myth that the nation was founded on compromise, and that the end of compromise led to the Civil War, but also to emancipation and the death of slavery. But you have a question you get to ask yourselves. Are Americans headed toward an irrepressible conflict between slavery or freedom, or is this the work of bad politicians who put America on a collision course with disunion because of their own petty ambitions? You will answer that question on the final, by the way. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Was It Really an Era of Good Feelings? The era of good feelings in many ways is misnamed, because we see the rise of increased sectionalism, and the politics of expansion and slavery become critical issues in the future. We see slavery is on the march. The institution is not dying, but thriving. We see the tariff issue become problematic, because protective tariffs are going to be a point of controversy in this era and throughout American history. Internal improvements also is an issue, because while there is a necessity for it, strict constructionist politics will not allow for it, and this means that it is up to the states to improve themselves, which will be slow, costly, and uneven. The Bank of the U.S. will also become a question. It was viewed as a necessity, especially after the War of 1812, but it will also run afoul of many and become a point of political controversy within a decade. The sale of public lands is also an issue. This is fueling the settlement and development of the West. It's part of the American Constitution that the federal government is the steward of public lands. And as the steward, the sale of public lands allows the government to make money and aid expansion, but this also causes issues with native tribes and with the expansion of slavery. In addition, one-party rule begins to fracture as different factions emerge. No political parties means it is hard to debate and to negotiate. How do politics work without parties? This quickly becomes problematic as factions take on a sectional tone. Factions in increased sectionalism will directly lead to the development of the second American party system in the 1830s as a way to control these sectional issues. Now, Clay, Calhoun, Jackson, and John Quincy Adams are the four great statements of the era. But we have a question. What happens when they go? Will a new group of self-interested politicians doom the country to war? Another issue is the Panic of 1819. This isn't a good feeling. This is a massive economic downturn. Lastly, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which was not really a compromise, but attempted to tamp down the issues for now. This will become viewed as an article of faith and almost sacred in the North, while it is resented in the South. But for now, it keeps the peace. So what will happen when it is challenged? The country will be pushed to the brink of war. Thus, I submit to you that the era of good feelings is misnamed because it presaged the political crisis of the 1850s 
in the coming of the Civil War. Well, do I have any questions? Anyone? Anyone? Don't you love digital formats? Well, that is all I have for you today. Please stay tuned for later in the week while I will post another PowerPoint and podcast for you to listen and follow along to. Until then, this is Professor Totten, and have a wonderful day. Stay safe and wash your hands.